most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, March 24th, 2023, the 793rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Okay, so we talked about Carrie Lake and the Arizona Supreme Court's decision to send part of her case, the signature matching part, back to the trial court for review. This is a statement from Carrie Lake yesterday on that. I am thrilled that the Supreme Court has agreed to give our signature verification evidence the appropriate forum for the evaluation it deserves. For years, signatures have been a third rail for Maricopa County. The process of verifying these signatures is the only security measure on mail-in ballots. The amount of time allotted to check these signatures was only eight seconds, which is not humanly possible. The system is completely broken. That's why they are absolutely terrified of letting anyone take a look at their signatures. The signature verification process in Maricopa County is a house of cards. Thanks to this ruling, my team will get the chance to topple it. Immediately following the election, multiple Maricopa County Elections Department officials, individuals who were involved in the signature verification process, reached out to me and urged my team to review the signatures. Now, thanks to this Supreme Court ruling, my team will be able to give the signatures the scrutiny they deserve. Three whistleblowers came forward with revelations of massive failures in the signature verification process. These whistleblowers were intimately involved in the process and they allege that Maricopa County willfully ignored law and procedure. This violation of procedure allowed for tens of thousands of illegal ballots to be approved and counted. Aside from all other issues, including nearly 60% of polling locations being inoperable on election day, this issue alone casts the veracity of Katie Hobbs' victory in serious doubt. When we verify these allegations, there will be no doubt that this election was compromised and that its results fail to meet the standard of certainty as outlined in Arizona law. And remember, if 
The court does decide in Kerry Lake's favor. That would either mean that the results of Maricopa County have to be thrown out and the vote would come down to the other counties in the state, meaning Kerry Lake is the victor, or they would run another election with all of those Maricopa County involved officials out of the picture. Obviously, either of those results would be wonderful, as would be the public narrative that the elections aren't safe, aren't secure, and don't reflect the will of voters, and that there is a system to guarantee that, and that system exists far beyond just Maricopa County. And if we don't get that result, well, then things continue on to the Supreme Court of the United States. And then we'll really get to find out whether or not we have people who still uphold their oaths to the American Constitution. Now, we were talking at the end of the episode yesterday about the ongoing collapse of the regime and the panic within the regime. This is from earlier this week on Tuesday, Bloomberg. Elon Musk's global empire has made him a burning problem for Washington. Argentina was headed toward its thrilling victory over France at the World Cup in Qatar. And Elon Musk, the Tesla Incorporated CEO and Twitter owner, stood in the stands laughing and holding a wine glass. A woman approached and asked for a selfie. He obliged and smiled. She briefly spoke to him and departed, according to a short video clip of the encounter posted on TikTok. Musk didn't appear to recognize the woman or say anything to her. But back in Washington, after her snapshot with the billionaire circled online, Biden administration officials grew uneasy. She was Nalia Askerzadeh, a Russian state-controlled TV personality who is regarded by President Vladimir Putin's opponents as one of his top propagandists. So, through the filter of the global state propaganda media, that actually sounds like she is just a normal journalist doing her job. This is essentially the way the global state propaganda media describes people like Tucker Carlson and certainly anyone to the right of Carlson or more outside the central narrative. And she had just as blithely gained access to a man who, among other pursuits, leads one of the U.S. government's most important contractors, rocket company SpaceX, and has held a federal security clearance. There's no indication that anything about Musk's December encounter with Asker's aid was improper, but it illustrates from the point of view of U.S. officials the trouble with Musk. Since buying Twitter Incorporated in October for $44 billion, Musk now controls five companies sprawling across the transportation, aerospace, health, telecommunications, and social media sectors. All of them intersect with government to varying degrees, giving the billionaire unmatched global clout. Tesla's electric vehicles underpin President Joe Biden's climate agenda. SpaceX keeps NASA's ambitions for manned exploration of space aloft and its Starlink network likely the largest privately owned fleet of satellites in the world, offers a vital communication lifeline to Ukrainian forces fighting Russian invaders. But it's at Twitter where Musk, the self-styled chief twit of the platform, causes Biden's team the most heartburn. Since taking over the company, Musk has gutted its staff and all but abandoned any semblance of content moderation, allowing disinformation to flourish, sometimes on his own account with nearly 132 million followers. He's also increasingly allied himself with Republicans who claim they've been censored by big tech and Democrats and has openly endorsed Biden's opponents. Well, wow, that is quite a paragraph. 
any semblance of content moderation. That's clearly not true. People are still shadow banned. People's accounts are still banned. I've been suspended multiple times just in the last five months since I went back on that platform. People aren't claiming they've been censored. People have been censored. His unorthodox management has introduced a fresh layer of volatility to a free speech venue that is at once a human rights lifeline for those living under authoritarian regimes like Iran and an unwitting booster of baseless conspiracies that have sparked violence like in the U.S. The Federal Trade Commission has interviewed at least two former Twitter employees and plans to depose Musk himself in an investigation of the platform's compliance with a 2011 agreement to protect user privacy. So the FTC is going to go after Elon Musk, basically, because they're upset that he's not censoring people as much as before. A shameful case of weaponization of a government agency for political purposes and suppression of truth. Musk posted March 7th on Twitter within the Biden administration. Some top officials fear that between his business empire, his vast wealth and his political alliances, Musk 51 is close to untouchable. He appears to unilaterally decide, for instance, how Ukraine can use the Starlink service, a presidential like power, atypical for a U.S. defense contractor. And they worry that because of Tesla's growing footprint in China and Musk's dependence on financing from the Middle East for his Twitter deal, he may be vulnerable to foreign manipulation. This is actually pretty hilarious, especially if you're familiar at all with the theory of devolution. Elon Musk, this defense contractor who controls all of these different major technological organizations and companies gets to freely choose to completely ignore the Biden administration. This defense contractor doesn't have to do what the president wants. And that's not me saying that. That's not me speculating. That's Bloomberg saying that. One U.S. official who spoke on condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of discussing Musk publicly <laughs> described Tesla as a Chinese company with an American subsidiary. The company's factory in Shanghai accounted for more than half of its global production last year. Biden himself has said that the entrepreneur's foreign ties are, quote, worthy of being looked at. Hey, Joe, can we look at your foreign ties? Because your foreign ties are proven and we know what the money was for. And it's exceptionally clear that the money was for selling out American interests to the global regime. At odds with U.S. policy, Musk has proposed both a Russia-friendly plan to end the war in Ukraine and a reunification scheme for Taiwan and China that was publicly applauded by the Beijing government. And both of those things are fait accompli, okay? There is no way that Ukraine is going to win. Ukraine was never going to win. Ukraine has been losing since day one of that war, and it was never going to go any other way. China is going to take back Taiwan. Nothing's going to stop that. It's going to happen. And it won't be because of what Elon Musk says on Twitter. Proposing peace deals in a normal world is a good thing. The only place peace deals aren't good is within the false reality where people actually believe they're going to salvage the regime stronghold in Ukraine and the one in Taiwan.
This Bloomberg article is basically denying the reality of government coordinated censorship, which has now been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt and ultimately was proven years ago beyond any shadow of a doubt. While they're saying it's really bad for Elon Musk to be able to say these things. I don't think there is another American more dependent upon the largesse of the Communist Party than Elon Musk. Senator Mark Warner, a Virginia Democrat who chairs the Intelligence Committee, said in an interview in New York in October. Well, Mark Warner, you might be one of those people. Asked for comment on the Biden administration's concerns about him, Musk said in an email, I believe in the Constitution. Do they? Several U.S. officials interviewed for this story asked not to be identified because discussions of Musk's influence and how it might be constrained have been private. So there's conversations happening about constraining Musk's influence in private at high levels of the government. But nobody wants to go on record about it because what might happen? Elon Musk is going to tweet about them and point out what they're doing. And that will ruin the whole plan even further. Yeah, that's the reason. Musk and his companies have endured some scrutiny from federal agencies. He continues to clash with the Securities and Exchange Commission over his tweeting, for example, and the Justice Department, SEC and National Highway Traffic Safety Administration have subjected the company's automated driving claims to greater scrutiny. Oh, wow. The approach has been akin to whack-a-mole, with regulators reacting to missteps and violations by Musk's companies after they happen. <laughs> it's so funny. I really try to make this a matter of calling balls and strikes. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said in an interview with Bloomberg editors and reporters March 13th. <laughs> balls and strikes. All right, Pete. When they do the right thing, we're going to lift that up. And when they don't, or when there's a problem as a regulator, we will be there to make sure that that people are taken care of. <laughs> uh, but Buttigieg, one of the most unflappable politicians in the Biden administration, spoke haltingly when asked more directly about Musk, including whether his views of the entrepreneur have changed. I really try to separate the... He paused for more than 10 seconds. Things people pay a lot of attention to from the things I need to pay the most attention to. Wow. Very bold and unflappable, Pete. <laughs> what a statement. The transportation department's job isn't to trust the companies it regulates, he added. It's to oversee them when it comes to compliance and then try to partner with them when we can get something good done together. Just a whole bunch of nothing. The man says absolutely nothing. It's like listening to Kamala Harris without the laughing. Or, to be honest, listening to Ron DeSantis without the laughing. Some administration officials have speculated that the government may someday need to break up Musk's empire as it did John D. Rockefeller's more than a century ago. But U.S. courts have, for decades, mostly frowned on trust-busting. Instead, some in the administration have weighed whether to subject his Twitter purchase to review by a secretive interagency panel, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, that's CFIUS, that can block corporate transactions involving foreigners over national security concerns. And we're going to hear about that later on, of course, with Joe Biden. And if you don't want to wait until later on, you can just grab the report on the Biden laptop. 
by Garrett Ziegler and Marco Polo. And you can learn all about the Biden family's problems with CFIUS. It's also funny, isn't it, that a state-sponsored, right, U.S. government-sponsored DOD contractor in all these different businesses, right, they're totally different businesses, Twitter and Tesla are absolutely not the same. Is it bad that someone owns both? Is it bad if someone owns five or six of those kinds of things? Well, it's never been bad before, and that's not what monopolies are about. Monopolies are about trying to force out competition from a singular industry. We have people on their side who own everything. Jeff Bezos owns Amazon, which is a huge factor in everybody's lives. They own Amazon Web Services, which has a large part in controlling the Internet. And then he just goes out and buys the Washington Post for fun while he's got his own space program. They never went after Jeff Bezos for buying the Washington Post. At least three foreign entities helped to finance Musk's Twitter deal. Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, Changpeng Cizi Zhao, founder and chief executive of the crypto exchange Binance, and Qatar's Sovereign Wealth Fund. And yes, that is all how it's been reported. Not really exactly true in my mind. We shall see. But particularly this Al-Walid bin Talal part doesn't make a whole lot of sense. His money was in before. His money's still in there now. There are other ways this all could have happened. The prospect that those investors gained access to Twitter user data has caused anxiety across the U.S. government's national security apparatus and intelligence community, according to multiple people familiar with the matter. And they are not very concerned about the other platforms. Did Facebook do that? Did TikTok do that? Did Google do that? Did Snap do that? The answers are yes, 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 yes. And I was commenting on Twitter this morning about how people are kind of missing something here. The focus is on TikTok. TikTok as a Chinese propaganda mouthpiece, a mouthpiece of the CCP. This app is the CCP app. They steal your data. They operate the app in a way that people find particularly manipulative. But it's not really that much different than the other apps. All of those apps, before TikTok even really appeared on the scene, those apps were already manipulating people, dominating their attention, affecting their mood throughout the day, leaving them with anxiety and depression. And of course, stealing all their data and manipulating them with that data in terms of their buying decisions, their political decisions. It is one large information weapon. And to the extent that that information weapon is dominated and controlled by the regime, then it's the same regime collecting your data. It's all probably going at some point through Amazon Web Services, maybe into that whole fire hose thing. And it's all being used to influence the world in a direction that supports the global agenda. There's no real reason to separate TikTok and say that one's worse because it's Chinese. It's the same regime worldwide. The CCP is just the Chinese branch of the same global regime that controls Joe Biden. So it doesn't really matter that your data's in China. It's in just as bad a shape as it would be if it was being manipulated by Facebook or Google or Snap or any of the rest of them. You don't think you're going to find Intel ties and law enforcement ties and U.S. government ties and CCP ties at those other tech companies at Google and Facebook? I mean, come on. 
But Elon and Twitter are particularly dangerous because we are told some of these foreigners have money in Twitter. Got it. Any such move would carry political risk for Biden. Musk has forged close ties with Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, whose California district is home to SpaceX operations. The billionaire spent time with McCarthy at a Wyoming resort last year and personally delivered birthday greetings at the lawmaker's office in January. There's no walking back the fact that a handful of super rich guys have a lot of influence in the American economy, said Senator Chris Murphy, a Connecticut Democrat who has advocated for a CFIUS review. That's no reason to shy away from using the tools of government to make sure there's no undue foreign influence on U.S. politics. Again, these are representatives of the regime who enabled and then covered up foreign influence in American elections. But the Treasury Department has ruled out a review on legal grounds, according to people familiar with the matter. Oh, it's not legal for them to investigate? Well, at least you tried. Even before buying Twitter, Musk enjoyed outsized influence in Washington. SpaceX is a giant of U.S. government contracting with nearly $3 billion in federal work in 2022. Musk and lobbyists for the company diligently worked Congress for years to build lawmaker support, and SpaceX sued the Air Force for the right to compete with a longstanding joint venture of defense giants Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Oh, wow. So the military industrial complex is mad at Elon Musk, too? Gosh, I'm shocked to hear that. Musk has long since departed from normal CEO behavior, mostly in comical ways. He briefly smoked pot on a live streamed podcast, annoying some Tesla investors and SpaceX employees who you can be certain never do drugs themselves and definitely don't support the legalization of marijuana. He tweeted that he had lined up financing to take the car maker private at $420 per share a marijuana joke that earned him an SEC investigation, a slap on the wrist fine for him of $20 million and a shareholder lawsuit. Ah, uh, you can't make jokes or the government's gonna come after you. In the last few months, his extracurricular behavior began to more seriously alarm U.S. officials and Biden's political allies. Musk has said he reluctantly voted for Biden in 2020, but his public political persona has steadily veered rightward since the president took office. So has the public political persona of millions of people because Joe Biden is illegitimate. And to the extent that he is operating as president at all, he is absolutely the worst president by far in American history. This is so silly. In June, Musk tweeted in reply to another Twitter user, that said he was leaning towards supporting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president in 2024. Days before the November elections, he urged his millions of Twitter followers to vote for Republicans. He's not allowed. We need to direct all the forces of government against him. In November, he threw his support firmly behind DeSantis, suggesting that the conservative governor, who has flown migrants from Texas to Massachusetts as a political stunt while cracking down on the teaching of sexuality and racism in grade schools, is, quote, sensible and centrist. And to the extent that centrist equals weak leftist, then maybe DeSantis is that. In October, Musk tweeted a plan to end the war in Ukraine that would entail Kiev permanently surrendering Crimea, 
the peninsula that Russia illegally annexed in 2014, abandoning its ambition to join NATO and agreeing to UN supervised elections in areas Russia occupies to determine whether Moscow would keep control of the territories. U.S. intelligence officials were aghast. The proposal was applauded by Putin's allies while helping to popularize the idea that Ukraine should make concessions to Russia to end the war and that the U.S. and its allies should curb support for Kiev's military. That sentiment has taken hold among some Republican lawmakers, complicating efforts by Biden and GOP leaders such as Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky to maintain robust U.S. military support for Ukraine's war effort. So Elon Musk is not allowed to defy the regime there either. DeSantis issued a statement March 13th saying that Ukraine's defense is not a, quote, vital U.S. interest and describing the war as a, quote, territorial dispute. He's taken all that back since. Don't worry. Musk is threatened by tweet to cut off Ukraine's free access to the Starlink network, which U.S. officials regard as a key advantage for Kiev, allowing the country's military leaders to maintain command and control of its forces without depending on more vulnerable radio and phone systems. That was like six months ago. They're just trying to air out the entire laundry list of regime complaints about Elon Musk so that everybody thinks Elon Musk must be dealt with by the government. This is the regime's propaganda media outlet directing two minutes hate at Elon Musk. That's what this is. This is lunacy. The billionaire backed off after outcry from Ukrainian leaders and their allies, but has continued to complain about the cost of the service and said last month that Kiev won't be allowed to use Starlink to target drone attacks on Russian forces. That's drawn rebukes overseas and at home. Yeah, you see, Elon has to allow his technology to be used by the U.S. military, who says they're not part of this war, to specifically target Russian forces, making Elon and Starlink part of the regime's war effort in Ukraine as they keep dragging it on and on and on, fighting willingly to the last Ukrainian in order to preserve a stronghold of regime corruption, whether it's money laundering, the training of a Nazi army, human trafficking, drug trafficking, illegal bioweapons labs. And somehow, as the DOD's top contractor, at least according to Cash Patel, the fake president has no ability to do anything about that whatsoever. I certainly hope he put pressure on Musk to join with the family of civilized nations in opposing Putin and doing everything we can to defeat him. Senator Dick Durbin, the number two Senate Democrat, said in an interview. To the extent that Musk is a problem for the Biden administration, it's one of interdependence. His ventures ambitions align with key elements of the president's agenda, including increasing the share of electric vehicles on the road. This has created an uneasy marriage of convenience at times, one that has become more fractious as Musk begins to mix his inspiring rhetoric about the future of humanity with bare knuckle politics. Oh, yes, that's what he's doing on Twitter for sure. White House officials met January 27th with Musk and other Tesla leaders at the company's Washington office, where they discussed how the car maker could help the Biden administration achieve its climate goals, including by opening its network of charging stations to vehicles made by competitors. They have a big footprint, Mitch Landrieu, a senior advisor to Biden, told reporters. 
What followed illustrates the puzzle Musk poses to the president and his team. Biden calls himself the most pro-labor president in U.S. history and has seldom mentioned Tesla or Musk while promoting electric vehicles because of their hostility toward unions. Oh, yeah, that's why he's doing it for sure. Musk just doesn't like unions enough. That's the problem between Musk and Biden. Got it. But on February 15th, after Musk announced he would open parts of Tesla's charger network to competitors, Biden responded with a complimentary tweet that name checked the billionaire's Twitter handle. Oh, they're getting along now. A day later, dozens of employees at a Tesla plant in Buffalo filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, alleging they were fired for trying to organize a union. Tesla said the terminations were part of a routine performance review process. So Elon Musk is a very bad guy. He has all these businesses that don't constitute a monopoly in any way, but he must be taken down so we can try the trust busting route. We can try to investigate him with a range of different agencies. We can freeze him out so that President Joe Biden won't say any nice things about him. But why are they really mad? Is it content moderation on Twitter? I mean, maybe a little bit. It's certainly not the unions thing. It seems like they're just mad because Elon Musk isn't doing any of the things he's told he's supposed to be doing. And why isn't he doing them? I guess it will just remain a mystery. And I know people have their doubts about Elon Musk, like maybe this whole Twitter thing is just a charade so that we think Twitter's fixed and it's really not fixed. And hey, there's some element of truth to that. Twitter is not totally fixed, not by a long shot. It's not some great free speech platform. It might be marginally better than it was five months ago, but it's certainly not all the way there. Steve Bannon goes after Elon Musk pretty hard, and everybody knows that I think Steve Bannon is fantastic. I think he's the philosophical leader of MAGA, and one of Bannon's top commitments is to bring down the CCP. He describes Musk as a CCP asset. Maybe there are some elements of truth to that. He certainly does have business in China. But with this article, as with every article, the key question to ask is, what do they want me to believe? And then why do they want me to believe it? And then the search for truth begins at the exact opposite of that answer. They're telling you about what Elon Musk has done and is doing, what he controls, and we are supposed to believe that Elon Musk is very bad, and because he controls all of those things, he's very dangerous and must be dealt with. This messaging would not be necessary if Elon Musk was doing what the regime wanted him to do. So let's get into some of the banking stuff. This is also from Bloomberg Today. Over half of Swiss disapprove of UBS's Credit Suisse takeover. More than half of the Swiss population don't approve of UBS Group AG's government-brokered takeover of troubled rival Credit Suisse Group AG, according to a recent poll. They're basically nationalizing Credit Suisse. That's what's going on here. They describe it as a bailout or a takeover. But this is the nationalization of a financial institution. And we're going to very likely see the same thing in the United States. And we'll get to that in a second. A total of 54% were against or strongly against the controversial deal. 
The GFS poll run between March 21st and 23rd shows just one in 20 Swiss or 5% polled were strongly supportive of the decision and another 30% somewhat supportive of the takeover, which was negotiated last weekend. The deal brokered by the Swiss government and central bank to avoid triggering a broader financial crisis has nonetheless been widely criticized and prompted the threat of multiple lawsuits and dented Switzerland's reputation for financial stability. The emergency ordinances the Swiss government invoked to ensure the takeover happened must still be approved by Swiss parliament, which has convened an extraordinary assembly in April to do so. The deal earned greater support in French-speaking Switzerland, where 41% were somewhat or strongly in favor of the deal, whereas among the larger German-speaking population, support partly or fully in favor was just 33%. Two alternatives were put to those polled, a temporary nationalization of Credit Suisse by the state or a controlled bankruptcy wind-down. Some 40% argued a temporary takeover would have been better and just 23% were in favor of the bankruptcy option. Also from Bloomberg today, Larry Summers urges U.S. regulators to pledge to back deposits if U.S. banks fail. Former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers urged current Secretary Janet Yellen and other top U.S. regulators to pledge that they will back the uninsured deposits in any banks that fail in the next year, an important move that could help build confidence amid the current turmoil. There needs to be clarity on the situation regarding deposits, Summers said on Bloomberg Television's Wall Street Week with David Weston. While regulators don't have the legal authority to give a blanket guarantee, they do have the, quote, essentially equivalent power to declare that in the event of a bank's failure, they will use the systematic risk exemption in order to assure that depositors are paid off in full, he said. Summers was speaking after news that Yellen had called an unscheduled meeting of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which includes Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and other top regulators. The gathering comes against a backdrop of continued banking strains in the U.S. and around the world, with Germany's Deutsche Bank AG in focus Friday. I suspect and hope that European authorities, with the support of the United States and Secretary Yellen and Chair Powell, will send strong signals of support over the weekend for the European banking system, said Summers, a Harvard University professor and paid contributor to Bloomberg Television. Given the scale of European institutions, there are potentially global consequences if problems spread from them. In the U.S., regulators should make clear that depositors will be paid off in full, as was done with Silicon Valley Bank, and state that, quote, it is their intention to maintain that policy for the next year, Summers said. So all the banks will be fully bailed out in the interest of the depositors. You got it? It's for the depositors. That would provide very substantial confidence to the banking system since it's the only time when guarantees are relevant, he said. It's better to err on the side of overdoing it when you're talking about protecting against bank runs than it is to err on the side of underdoing. Summers pointed to the highly fevered environment with respect to contagion right now and said that with the right message of supporting depositors over an interim period, regulators can contain a significant amount of the pressures that we're facing. And it goes on with more quotes. But you see, we have to stop contagion, whether it's with masks or social distancing of banks, or maybe there's a vaccine that we can begin injecting into our money. What you don't want is contagion. 
And that's why Silicon Valley Bank was bailed out and backstopped. But somehow we still have contagion anyway. This is Reuters this morning. Deutsche Bank shares plunge default insurance at highest since 2018. Deutsche Bank shares tumbled on Friday after the cost of insuring the bank's debt against the risk of default shot to more than four year highs, highlighting concerns among investors about the stability of Europe's banks. The region's banking sector has had a rough ride in the last week with a state backed rescue of Credit Suisse and turmoil among regional U.S. banks fueling concerns about the health of the global banking sector. Oh, no, the health of the global banking sector is deteriorating. Poor global bankers. Deutsche shares, which have lost more than a fifth of their value so far this month, fell by as much as 14.9% on Friday to their lowest in five months. The shares were down 13%. Germany's largest bank has seen $3 billion wiped off its market value in the space of just a week. Deutsche Bank's credit default swaps, a form of insurance for bondholders, shot up above 220 basis points, the most since late 2018, from 142 basis points just two days ago, based on data from S&P Market Intelligence. And jumping down in the article, Reuters would like us to know that this is not a rerun of 2008. Despite the turbulence, market watchers highlight that European regulators and central banks have reiterated their intention to keep markets stable and that the banks themselves are more strongly capitalized and regulated than they were back in 2007, just before the global financial crisis. We have no concerns about Deutsche's viability or asset marks. To be crystal clear, Deutsche is not the next Credit Suisse. A report from Autonomous, an independent researcher said. Well, I guess we can just take that and move on then. Deutsche Bank is just fine. We'll probably never hear about any of this ever again. This is from yesterday. Back to Bloomberg. Credit Suisse, UBS, among banks facing DOJ Russia sanctions probe. Credit Suisse Group AG and UBS Group AG are among the banks under scrutiny in a U.S. Justice Department probe into whether financial professionals helped Russian oligarchs evade sanctions, according to people familiar with the matter. The Swiss banks were included in a recent wave of subpoenas sent out by the U.S. government, the people said. <laughs> I love when the articles are just quotes that the people said. The information requests were sent before the crisis that engulfed Credit Suisse and resulted in UBS's proposed takeover of its rival. Subpoenas also went to employees of some major U.S. banks, two people with knowledge of the inquiries said. The Justice Department inquiries are focused on identifying which bank employees dealt with sanctioned clients and how those clients were vetted over the past several years, according to one of the people. Those bankers and advisors may then be subject to further investigation to determine if they broke any laws. Credit Suisse declined to comment and UBS didn't respond to a request for comment. Before the Russian invasion of Ukraine resulted in expanded sanctions, Credit Suisse was well known for catering to wealthy Russians. At its peak, the bank managed more than $60 billion for Russian clients who generated between $500 million and $600 million a year in revenue for Credit Suisse. At the time it discontinued its business with individual Russian clients last May, Credit Suisse held about $33 billion for them. 50% more than UBS, despite the latter's larger wealth management business. 
The Justice Department last year launched its Klepto Capture Task Force to enforce sanctions on wealthy Russians who are political allies of President Vladimir Putin. The U.S. government has since seized a number of yachts, private planes, and luxury properties. They just get to take them, you see. Last month, the U.S. moved to seize homes in New York, Florida, and the Hamptons, owned by sanctioned oligarch Victor Vexelberg. A number of individuals have also been charged with helping oligarchs hide assets. British businessman Graham Bonham Carter was arrested in October on charges that he illegally transferred $1 million to maintain U.S. properties for sanctioned billionaire Oleg Deripaska. A former senior Federal Bureau of Investigation agent was also charged with helping Deripaska violate sanctions in January. And they're referring there to Charles McGonigal. Banks can face serious penalties for violating U.S. sanctions. BNP Paribas in 2014 agreed to pay nearly $9 billion after pleading guilty to U.S. charges for processing transactions for sanctioned Sudanese, Iranian, and Cuban entities. That is an awful lot of control. You just slap sanctions on somebody and then the bank can't do business with that person anymore, even though that bank is not in the United States. It's incredible. It's almost like there's this, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, oh yeah, global regime in charge of things. In 2019, Standard Chartered Bank agreed to pay more than a billion dollars to settle a Justice Department probe in which a former bank employee pleaded guilty to conspiring to violate U.S. sanctions on Iran. As the Credit Suisse rescue plan emerged over the weekend, UBS expressed general concerns about taking on its rivals' potential legal liabilities. The Swiss government said it would guarantee up to 9 billion francs, which is about $9.8 billion, in losses to UBS from the deal. U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in early March said the Justice Department was responding to the, quote, uncertain geopolitical environment by beefing up its national security division, which enforces sanctions violations. Corporate crime and national security are overlapping to a degree never seen before, and the department is retooling to meet that challenge, Monaco said. So that's something to keep an eye on as it develops. And speaking of Russia's very brutal invasion in Ukraine and the utter absurdity of the regime's policies and narrative surrounding the entire conflict for over a year now, Seymour Hirsch has followed up on his piece about the destruction, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. This is from SeymourHirsch.substack.com, the cover up. It's been six weeks since I published a report based on anonymous sourcing, naming President Joe Biden as the official who ordered the mysterious destruction last September of Nord Stream 2, a new $11 billion pipeline that was scheduled to double the volume of natural gas delivered from Russia to Germany. The story gained traction in Germany and Western Europe, but was subject to a near media blackout in the U.S. Two weeks ago, after a visit by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to Washington, U.S. and German intelligence agencies attempted to add to the blackout by feeding the New York Times and the German weekly Die Zeit false cover stories to counter the report that Biden and U.S. operatives were responsible for the pipeline's destruction. Press aides for the White House and CIA have consistently denied that America was responsible for exploding the pipelines, and those pro forma denials were more than enough for the White House press corps. There is no evidence that any reporter assigned there 
has yet to ask the White House press secretary whether Biden had done what any serious leader would do formally task the American intelligence community to conduct a deep investigation with all of its assets and find out just who had done the deed in the Baltic Sea. According to a source within the intelligence community, the president has not done so, nor will he. Why not? Because he knows the answer. Sarah Miller, an energy expert and an editor at Energy Intelligence, which publishes leading trade journals, explained to me in an interview why the pipeline story has been big news in Germany and Western Europe. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines in September led to a further surge of natural gas prices that were already six or more times the pre-crisis levels, she said. Nord Stream was blown up in late September. German gas imports peaked a month later in October at 10 times pre-crisis levels. Electricity prices across Europe were pulled up and government spent as much as 800 billion euros by some estimates, shielding households and businesses from the impact. Gas prices, reflecting the mild winter in Europe, have now fallen back to roughly a quarter of the October peak, but they are still between two and three times pre-crisis levels and are more than three times current U.S. rates. Over the last year, German and other European manufacturers closed their most energy-intensive operations, such as fertilizer and gas production, and it's unclear when, if ever, those plants will reopen. Europe is scrambling to get solar and wind capacity in place, but it may not come soon enough to save large chunks of German industry. That's wild, right? Large chunks of German industry could collapse as fallout from the energy crisis exacerbated by the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. In early March, President Biden hosted German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Washington. The trip included only two public events, a brief pro forma exchange of compliments between Biden and Schultz before the White House press corps with no questions allowed, and a CNN interview with Schultz by Fareed Zakaria, who did not touch on the pipeline allegations. Isn't that amazing how the state media operates? Oh, I know CNN is a private company. They're not just disseminating the narrative of the regime, except that they are. The chancellor had flown to Washington with no members of the German press on board, no formal dinner scheduled, and the two world leaders were not slated to conduct a press conference as routinely happens at such high profile meetings. Instead, it was later reported that Biden and Schultz had an 80 minute meeting with no aides present for much of the time. There have been no statements or written understandings made public since then by either government. But I was told by someone with access to diplomatic intelligence that there was a discussion of the pipeline expose. And as a result, certain elements in the Central Intelligence Agency were asked to prepare a cover story in collaboration with German intelligence that would provide the American and German press with an alternative version for the destruction of Nord Stream 2. In the words of the intelligence community, the agency was, quote, to pulse the system, end quote, in an effort to discount the claim that Biden had ordered the pipeline's destruction. And we covered that piece from The New York Times on this podcast a few weeks back. They basically said it was the Ukrainian water polo team. They just were out on their boat practicing water polo in the ocean, and they decided to dive all the way to the bottom of the ocean and blow up the pipelines. It was just a random thing by a group of pro-Ukrainian actors, but it wasn't Ukraine, not affiliated with Zelensky, not affiliated with the U.S., 
not affiliated with the UK. Couldn't have been any of them, even though we've had reports that it was all of them. At this point, it must be noted that Chancellor Schultz, whether or not he was alerted of the destruction of the pipeline in advance, still an open question, has clearly been complicit since last fall in support of the Biden administration's cover-up of its operation in the Baltic Sea. The agency did its job and, with the help of German intelligence, concocted and planted stories about an ad hoc, off-the-books operation that had led to the destruction of the pipelines. The scam led to a March 7th report in the New York Times citing an anonymous American official claiming that, quote, new intelligence suggests that a pro-Ukrainian group may have been involved in the pipeline's destruction and an online report the same day in Die Zeit, Germany's most widely read weekly newspaper, stating that German investigative officials have tracked down a chartered luxury sailing yacht that was known to have set off on September 6th from the German port at Rostock past Bornholm Island off the coast of Denmark. The island is a few miles from the area where the pipelines were destroyed on September 26th. The yacht had been rented from Ukrainian owners and manned by a party of six, a captain, two divers, two divers assistants, and a doctor. Five were men, one a woman. False passports were involved. Holger Start, author of the Die Zeit report, told me after publication of this report that he had been following the criminal investigation into the yacht and its whereabouts for months, and that he and the newspaper decided to rush to publish what they knew upon learning of the New York Times report. He had no contact with German intelligence. The two publications included cautions in their stories, noting that, as the Times put it, there was much they didn't know. The new information was, however, also said to have given officials, quote, increased optimism that a firm conclusion about the perpetrators would be reached. But it would take a long time, according to various senior officials in Washington and Germany. The message was that the press and the public should stop asking questions and let the investigators unravel the truth, which, of course, would never come. The experienced start who heads Die Zeit's investigative unit went a step further and noted that there were some, quote, in international security services who had not excluded the possibility that the yacht story, quote, was a false flag operation. Indeed, it was. It was a total fabrication by American intelligence that was passed along to the Germans and aimed at discrediting your story. I was told by a source within the American intelligence community. This is Seymour Hirsch talking as himself. A source in the intel community told him that the story about the pro-Ukrainian groups sabotaging the Nord Stream was a total fabrication by American intelligence passed on to the Germans. The disinformation professionals inside the CIA understand that a propaganda gambit can only work if those on the receiving end are desperate for a story that can diminish or displace an unwanted truth. And that is very insightful. That is something to make note of. Disinformation professionals inside the CIA understand that a propaganda gambit can only work if those on the receiving end are desperate for a story that can diminish or displace an unwanted truth. 
And the truth in question is that President Joe Biden authorized the destruction of the pipelines and will have a difficult time explaining away his action as Germany and its Western European neighbors suffer as businesses are shuttered amid high day-to-day energy costs. Ironically, the most telling evidence about the weakness of the New York Times report came from one of three Times reporters whose bylines were on the story. A few days after publication of the story, the reporter, Julian Barnes, was interviewed on the popular Times podcast, The Daily, by host Michael Barbaro. Here's the transcript. Host, who exactly was responsible for this attack and how did you and our colleagues go about figuring that out? Barnes responds, well, I think what happened was for much of the investigation, we weren't exactly asking the right questions. Hmm. And what were the right questions? Well, we had logically been focused on countries. Mm-hmm, responds Barbaro. And have you ever listened to The Daily? The show sounds so ridiculous. It's like the NPR voice that is very soft and soothing to the child brain. It makes them believe that that person must really know what they're talking about. And it just floods them with disinformation all day long. It introduces them into a warm and soothing false reality. Barnes continues. All those states that we just went through, did Russia do it? Did the Ukraine state do it? And that was just hitting dead end after dead end. <laughs> we weren't finding officials who were telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So my colleagues, Adam Entis, Adam Goldman, and I started asking a different question. Could this have been done by a non-state actor? Hmm, responds Barbaro. Could this have been done by a group of individuals who were not working for a government? Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this new question? That's Barbaro. I'm going to use that as his voice, maybe. Well, we started asking, who might these saboteurs be? Or if we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with? Could they be pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be other saboteurs? And the more we talked to officials who had access to intelligence, the more we saw this theory gaining traction. Mm-hmm. And my initial thought that this could be pro-Russian saboteurs turned out to be wrong. And we learned that it was most likely a pro-Ukrainian group. Hmm. So in other words, a group of people who did this on behalf of Ukraine? What do you learn that makes you... Think that's what happened. Michael, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? Uh, you're the one who wrote the report. So the New York Times puts out a report. What they've learned from anonymous intelligence officials. And it has three writers. And they all know very, very little about what they're talking about. And he wants to make it very clear that they know really very little right? This group remains mysterious and it remains mysterious, not just to us, but also to the U S government officials that we have spoken to. They know that the people involved were either Ukrainian or Russian or a mix. <laughs> they know that they are not affiliated with the Ukrainian government, but they know they're also anti-Putin and pro-Ukraine. Gosh, they know everything, but not really. You see, we know very little, and also the U.S. government officials and intelligence officials we spoke to 
also know very little. So it's mysterious to us. It's mysterious to them. It's going to be hard, honestly, to ever get an answer to this question. But we know for absolutely certain that Seymour Hersh is wrong and it wasn't American intelligence and British intelligence and German intelligence definitely isn't involved in covering it up. And Michael Barbaro actually responds this time and says, so after all this investigative reporting, what you find is that the culprit here is a group of people who want the same thing as Ukraine, but aren't officially tied to the government of Ukraine. But I'm curious how certain you are that these individuals are not connected to the Ukrainian government. The reporter, Julian Barnes, says, well, the intelligence right now says they're not. And while officials are telling us that the president of Ukraine and his key advisors did not know, we can't be certain that that's true or that somebody else didn't know. So they basically don't know anything and are just repeating what they were told by intelligence officials who they admit also don't know anything. Got it? The Times reporters in Washington were at the mercy of White House officials who had access to the intelligence. But the information they received originated with a group of CIA experts in deception and propaganda whose mission was to feed the newspaper a cover story and to protect a president who made an unwise decision and is now lying about it. So Seymour Hirsch doubles down and supports his original reporting, and he takes that ridiculous New York Times article to the woodshed. And I know, I know, Seymour Hirsch is just a conspiracy theorist. He's just lying. He's just making this story up, even though it caused the CIA and German intelligence to create a story and feed it to the mainstream media, a story so ridiculous that the reporter who wrote the story can't substantiate it. And he doesn't believe that the people who gave him the quote unquote intelligence can substantiate it either. Turns out there are people around the world who actually do believe Seymour Hirsch, and one of them is in the German government. This is from the Gateway Pundit yesterday. The headline is Germany's AFD party on Nord Stream attack. Quote, if Seymour Hirsch is correct, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz committed treason and must resign. And they have a quote in here from a member of the AFD party, their party head, Tino Trupala. The allegations by Pulitzer Prize winner Hirsch are serious. If they are correct, the chancellor bears responsibility for covering up an attack on vital and valuable German infrastructure, and he would have abused the power of the German government to commit an act of treason. This begs the question, did he know about the planning and execution of the crime? In order to clarify these questions, we call for an investigation involving all European partners. If Chancellor Schultz was somehow involved in the Nord Stream attack, he must resign. The Gateway Pundit adds, the right wing AFD has submitted a peace plan to end the war in Ukraine and is currently surging in the polls, passing the ruling Green Party, which has abandoned its roots in the peace movement to vocally support the Ukraine war. Isn't that amazing? Commies just love war when it's their war. Last week, March 15th, the AFD moved to convene a parliamentary inquiry on the Nord Stream attack in the Bundestag, which was passed into committee for further deliberation. And you gotta love that. The parties surging in Germany. People are turning away from the progressives and the regime. And their party head has now introduced the big T word, 
Treason. Because what else could it be? An unprovoked act of war by the United States, a sabotage on critical infrastructure by the United States. And it seems most likely with the help of British intelligence, as we've covered on the podcast before, and more than likely with the knowledge of Ukrainians and perhaps other governments in the European branch of the regime. What else can you call it when you allow another country to attack your country? It's good that that word treason is out there because it's going to apply to a whole lot of Americans as well who have allowed the regime and its foreign assets around the world to continuously attack the United States of America. We're not just talking about the pandemic. We can talk about the elections. We can talk about the invasion at the southern border. The list goes on and on. And the regime and its supporters in the United States have supported each and every little bit of it as it destroys our society during a time of war. And so how's that for a week? How is that for a week? Was there any bad news this week? Any bad news? Can you think of any bad news? Yes, there's bad news around the world. Bad things are happening. Bad things will always happen. That is just the permanent state of the world. That does not mean that because bad things happen, our situation is not rapidly improving. These are major wins that we have seen this week, and we should be happy about them. Everything is going in our direction, and the pace at which it moves in our direction is quickening. That's worth being happy about. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct 
shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!